How do you reach Muslims in their own country? In most cases, personal evangelism is illegal. Christian literature, banned. And Christian churches, not so much. But radio has a way of breaking through the barriers. Hey, straight ahead, you'll be greatly encouraged by stories of outreach to Muslims who are finding Christ right now. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our uh, pilot for this one-hour flyover of the Middle East is Dr. Charlie Dyer, himself a frequent flyer with more than 100 trips to Israel. Charlie, for somebody who is new to the program, what's it all about? How do you divide up the various segments, and what's your goal? It's the fastest trip to Israel anybody can ever take. Uh, It's (laughs) actually a one-hour trip. Uh, The first part is current events. What's happening in the Middle East? People need to know about. And then, of course, uh, just like you were mentioning, uh, who are the key people in the Middle East and what events are happening there that uh, might just help people get an understanding and know how to better pray for that part of the world? Uh, The third segment, well, that's question and answer because a trip to Israel always raises questions. People can write into us and we provide answers. And then, of course, the last segment, we go to some spot, usually in Israel, but it can be some other place in the Middle East. Uh, But we go to that spot, open the Word of God, and try and see how the land and the book fit together in a way that changes our lives. All right. Well, we're looking forward to all of it. First, though, this question, what does God really care about? I mean, if you were to sit down with a piece of paper, it would obviously be a long list. But there's one thing we often forget that he cares about, and that's the Jewish people. We see throughout Scripture that he cares deeply about their physical preservation and their eternal salvation. That's right, and that's why our friends at Life and Messiah have spent 135 years sharing God's heart for the Jewish people, both by proclaiming the gospel to them and by equipping others to do the same. This month, they're offering you a special ebook titled Sharing God's Heart. This 30-day devotional will help connect you with God's heart for His precious people. The articles, written by Life and Messiah staff, provide insight into Jewish life and culture, and prepare you so that you too can reach our Jewish friends with the gospel they so desperately need. To receive this 30-day devotional, visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up today to receive your free gift. And now let's take a look at current events from the Middle East. Story number one, with just over two weeks remaining until Israel's elections, how is the race unfolding between the different parties? You know, John, the the word that describes it, I think, best might be chaotic. Uh, The polls are mixed. Some are actually showing Netanyahu just reaching the magic number needed to form a coalition, while others have him coming up short and producing still another deadlocked Knesset. Ayelet Shaked and the Jewish Home Party candidate are currently polling below the threshold needed to make it into the Knesset. And there's some pressure on her to drop out so as not to waste conservative votes. However, other polls suggest her numbers have been rising and that crossing the election threshold might help propel Netanyahu to victory. On the other side of the political spectrum, the Arab nationalist Balad Party appealed its disqualification to Israel's Supreme Court, which they did uh, overturn, so Balad can now run. Now, they have no realistic hope of crossing the threshold, so it's unclear if this will hurt or help other Arab parties. Two Likud party candidates were disqualified by the Central Election Committee. They appealed their disqualifications, and the Supreme Court allowed them to run as well. Uh, So with two weeks in, they're finally still deciding who can run. And as if all that turmoil isn't enough, Likud leader Benjamin Netanyahu was briefly hospitalized after feeling unwell during Yom Kippur services. The doctors ran tests which came back normal and he was discharged the next day, but it interjected a brief note of uncertainty into the race. 
the key to the election in the next two weeks is going to come down to several fundamentals. Uh, first, which party will do best in getting out the vote? You know, this is the fifth election in just three and a half years, and each party faces the challenge of, of overcoming voter fatigue. Uh, the election will also come down to seeing which of the smaller parties does finally make it across that survival threshold. You know, to do so, they have to get at least three and a quarter percent of the total ballots cast. The parties that cross the threshold end up with at least four seats in the Knesset, and those seats will be crucial for building a working coalition from any group. And the third fundamental is ultimately the alignment of the parties following the election. Will someone be able to persuade a sufficient number of parties to join a coalition to give a parliamentary majority without making that coalition unmanageable politically? The election is going to tell us a lot about which party receives the most votes, but that doesn't necessarily determine who will be the next prime minister or what the government will actually be like. This is The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, staring at a list of current event stories that uh, we're trying to unfold for you right now in this opening segment. Well, a U.S. negotiator presented a compromise plan to solve Israel's and Lebanon's maritime border dispute. How did each country respond, and when will the final agreement be signed? Well, you know, the good news is that an agreement was reached. However, the initial response wasn't positive. After receiving the proposal, Lebanon objected to parts of the agreement and demanded more changes. Israeli Prime Minister Lapid rejected Lebanon's comments and said Israel wouldn't agree to any additional changes. Uh, eventually, the U.S. was able to finesse a compromise between the groups. Uh, the situation was tense because Israel just began testing the pipeline from the new field, new gas field out in the Mediterranean prior to it becoming operational. Now, after some last-minute tweaks, this revised proposal was submitted by the U.S. and was approved by both sides. And the expectation now is the agreement will be formally ratified by both countries sometime later this month, probably in the next week or two. The debate in Israel right now is whether they conceded too much to make the agreement a reality or if the U.S. put too much pressure on Israel to compromise. Now, with the coming elections, this will likely be something else that will be hotly debated over the next two weeks. How does this impact uh, the situation in Russia with their exporting of, of natural gas and so on? Well, the new gas field coming online actually could provide some help uh, this winter to Europe. Uh, it's not going to replace totally Russia's amount, but uh, it could certainly help some uh, with Europeans by being able to export this natural gas. Now, the Lebanon side, that's going to take five to six years before any of the uh, proposed fields there can be explored and the infrastructure can be set up to import gas. So it's not going to help anything, at least in the near term. A researcher has proposed that King Tut's tomb might have a hidden chamber containing the remains of Queen Nefertiti. Now, how realistic is his proposal, Charlie? And what would this queen be doing in King Tut's tomb? And how can they test this theory in the first place? Yeah, King Tut, the way we know him, his real name was Tutankhamun, was a minor pharaoh. But we know him because his tomb had never been looted before it was discovered actually exactly a century ago. Well, a few years ago, someone suggested there was a hidden room in the tomb uh, radar scans were done, and they apparently disproved the theory. Other studies, however, did suggest the possibility of an additional chamber, but verifying it would require archaeologists to dig through one of the walls of King Tut's tomb, and, of course, that would damage the tomb. Now a researcher claims to have discovered hidden hieroglyphics in the tomb, suggesting Queen Nefertiti is buried in a concealed adjacent complex. Uh, Queen Nefertiti is the wife of King Tut's father, but uh, the family relationships, well, they get pretty complex. 
Nefertiti was the cousin of King Akhenaten, King Tut's father, before becoming his wife. Akhenaten then married several other women, one of whom bore King Tut. And King Tut later married his half-sister, who was the daughter of Nefertiti. So she was King Tut's stepmother and mother-in-law. And he came to the throne around eight or nine years old, died ten years later. Uh, Nefertiti, though, is best known from a bust of her that was discovered. It's now on display in Germany. It shows her as a beautiful woman, uh, and history suggests she was greatly loved by her husband. Uh, She died around 1330 B.C., several years after her husband, and two years after King Tut took the throne at the age of eight or nine. Now, her mummy has never been discovered, and according to this researcher, King Tut's tomb might actually have been part of the tomb prepared for Queen Nefertiti. Because King Tut died at such an early age, his tomb hadn't been prepared, and the theory is that they chose an antechamber of Nefertiti's tomb and just really converted it into his tomb with hers behind it. Some of the hieroglyphics in his tomb were apparently painted over earlier graphics that showed King Tut interring Nefertiti. The question now is whether they'll conduct an excavation to check out the theory and At least right now, that seems unlikely, at least that they would dig through a wall of the tomb unless they're certain there's something on the other side. Those studies are going to take time, so we'll need to wait to see if another major find exists in that tomb. Fascinating, fascinating. Well, over-the-phone voice analysis to detect atrial fibrillation, or AFib, this sounds like science fiction, but apparently it's another new innovation coming out of Amazing Israel. Tell us about this new process from CardioCall. Yeah, the problem with AFib is that it's often asymptomatic. The heart can begin racing and many don't even notice it until they suffer something more serious like a stroke. Uh, because the symptoms can come and go, normal detection by a doctor during a checkup is less than 10% effective. Now this new approach, they found the human voice carries information related to arrhythmia and AFib. They developed this algorithm that tests a patient's voice to detect AFib. Cardiocall has developed a system that can be used to large screen at-risk populations. Uh, The person basically calls a number or talks to uh, uh, Siri or Alexa and says, ah, three times during the day. And uh, the technology, it it listens to what they're saying and actually can test and see if they have AFib. You know, someday, perhaps soon, screening for AFib might be as easy as talking to Alexa or Siri, who will tell you then, pause and say, ah. And that's a look at current events here on the Middle East. Up next, a conversation with Bonnie Salos, stories of Muslims coming to Christ, right here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. There are more than two billion Muslims around the world. How exactly do you reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ? What works and what doesn't work? And what about Christian media outreach? Is it having any real impact? Let's talk about it next. Hey, welcome again to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and this second segment of the program is one you're going to be glad you stuck around for, stories that will encourage you all day long. But first, a quick idea on how you personally can share Jesus, Isa, with a Muslim friend. Let's listen. So you want to reach out to your Muslim friend. You want to express love. What are the top three ways you might be able to do that? Samuel Naman is a Pakistani-American and has some insights. What do you say? The first thing is this, to accept that they are God's beautiful creation. Hmm. That's the first thing. They are made in the image of God. 
they do not have the eternal life and salvation. And you and I have it, and we have to find a way to love them yes. in the kingdom of God. And for that purpose, once we have that goal, John, we will go out of the way. We will sacrifice our time, talent, and treasure to invite them because we want to see them reached with the gospel. Mm-hmm. And we want them to worship the King of Kings at the throne of grace when we are all up there. And uh, I refuse to just back off and say, oh, I, I don't want any interaction with these people. They are here. They are neighbors. They are the citizens or whatever. They are here to stay. And my point is this. When they are here, they need to see us who profess to be Christians, Bible-believing Christians. But if we don't love them in the name of Jesus, then yeah. what are we preaching? What other ways can we love our Muslim friends? Courtesy. Courtesy. Engagement. Acknowledgement that they are here, welcoming them, and letting them know in any way or shape or form, how can we help? Mm-hmm. How can we help? How can we help the kids? How can we take them to grocery or whatever? You know, it depends on where you are, in the city or suburbs or other ways. But just a gentle smile and mm. a care yeah. and diffusing this tension that we become part of is very, very crucial. Courtesy, engagement, acknowledgement, great ideas, practical thoughts from Samuel Naman here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Bonnie Sala is president and CEO of Guidelines, founded by a great friend of Moody Radio, Harold Sala. And Bonnie has taken Guidelines global in its second generation, expanding the ministry through partnerships among the body of Christ worldwide. Bonnie writes and voices the daily Reset audio devotional heard on Moody Radio. Comes from her favorite time of the day, early morning, spent with Jesus and His Word. Reset is heard on air in the U.S. and the Philippines, Singapore, throughout Africa, as well as uh, online and through podcast. An international speaker and author, Bonnie enjoys traveling anywhere with her husband, Kevin Condren, and loves hanging out with her two adult sons and a frisky fox terrier, Cinnamon. Good to have you with us again here on The Land and the Book, Bonnie. Thank you so much, John, and thanks for that shout-out to Cinnamon. She'll appreciate it. <laughs> Good for her. Well, talk about the content that you are creating uh, that is targeted for Muslims. What's coming together and what seems to be working? Well, you know, for almost 60 years now, we have created short audio devotionals, two to five minute long audio devotionals that simply introduce Jesus and apply the concepts that are found in God's Word to the problems that people face all around the world. And what we have been so surprised to see God doing is that as we have been working through partnership to translate and share these short little devotionals around the world, the place that we saw the greatest explosion of growth, God bringing partners to us, have been throughout the Muslim world. And what our partners that we work with are telling us is that these short, simple messages that are very easy to understand are a perfect way to introduce Jesus to someone coming from a Muslim mindset. It's a mindset Mm -hmm. that takes a lot of time to break through, and short, frequent repetition is the key they have found. So what medium are you using? How are these uh, little broadcasts getting out? Is it FM radio, television, internet, uh, one, all? It's anything audio, anything and everything audio. So uh, traditional radio, shortwave, internet, social media, uh, the possibilities are almost endless today for digital content. So what countries are you working in as you seek to reach Muslims? 
Well, of the 24 languages that we work in, 12 are reaching the Muslim world. So these are places like uh, the Middle East, Israel, Yemen, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, North Africa, including Egypt, Algeria, Libya, Morocco, Tunisia, even into Central Asia, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan. You know, the, the Muslim people groups are the largest groups of unreached people in the world. And so it's just so exciting to see God exploding responses from Muslim listeners. Bonnie Sela writes and voices the Daily Reset audio devotional, which comes from her favorite time of the day, early mornings, and it's heard all across the country, in the Philippines, Singapore, Africa, online, podcast, just about everywhere. And she's joining us today in conversation here on The Land and the Book as we talk about some of the outreach impact they're having in Muslim countries. Well, what seems to be working so far? I bet there are lessons you guys have learned. Well, I'll tell you what's definitely working is social media. You know, social media is a new phenomenon, especially in some of the more remote places of the world that now have internet. In 2021, our Turkish partner reported 2 million engagements in their social media Mm. alone. And our Arabic partner in North Africa communicated with 2.8 million people 4,200 asking to hear the gospel, 250 declaring their profession of faith, and 18 asking to be baptized. Now, you might think, wow, 18? Those numbers sound small. They are not. These are the people that they have heard from and have been able to disciple and develop relationships with. As you know, there's a very, very high price to pay to going public with your faith in Jesus if you are coming out of Islam. So we know that there are millions more who have become followers of Jesus that we do not even know about yet, and we may not know about it until we meet them in heaven. Yeah. Well, let's personalize this just a bit. How is all this great content targeted toward Muslims being received by listeners? I bet you've got some examples. I absolutely do. You know, our partners that we work with throughout the Muslim world tell us it's not that Muslims reject Jesus. They just do not know him. They may have heard of him because Esau, of course, is one of their Muslim prophets, but Jesus is not known to them as God. One of the women that I was privileged to meet this spring when I traveled to North Africa, we're calling her Sarah. Of course, her identity has to be kept secret. She was one of the most joy-filled people I have ever met in my life. She shared with us how she was not satisfied with her Muslim faith, and we hear this all the time. She said, I couldn't find any answers, and so I decided I'm going to become an atheist. For two Mm. years, she said, I did not believe in God, but you know, God was calling her back, and she did the only thing she knew. She thought, I need to go back to my Muslim prayers. She shared with me that as I was preparing to pray, I had my prayer rug down on the ground. She said, Jesus came to me as I tried to kneel, and she felt a hand grip her shoulder, preventing her from kneeling. And she actually reached over and grabbed my shoulder in a death grip to show me what she had experienced. The Mm. name Jesus came from her lips, and she said she could not kneel down on the ground. She said when she woke the next morning, her shoulder was sore, but she just could not accept that Jesus was God. Jesus Mm. continued to appear to her multiple times, and she finally heard a voice from heaven saying, I am Jesus Christ. I am God. 
And she said she wanted to follow him, which she did. Well, at that time, she thought she was the only Christian in her entire country. And she said she baptized herself with a cup of water. Well, (laughs) through social media, a friend gave her the phone number that she had seen on social media of our ministry partner. And she called that phone number and she talked with a counselor for over six hours. Four days later, that counselor was able to come and meet with her in person, baptize her, and begin to disciple her. And eventually, of course, she was connected with a small group of believers, Underground Church. And today, she works full-time with our partner ministry. And she Mm. is, like I mentioned, the most joy-filled woman that I maybe that I've ever met. Bonnie Sala is president and CEO of Guidelines, founded by Harold Sala. And in the partnerships that she and the team have ventured into, they are reaching out to Muslims with some great impact. What about follow-up with listeners, uh, discipleship? How is that done? You know, that's another area where technology is paving the way for new believers to be discipled. We call it digital discipleship. And one of our partners in particular has developed a discipleship program specifically for Muslim background believers, for people who are going through this transformational process in their minds and coming to understand Jesus as God. And they do that one-on-one over, you know, it could be through text messaging, it could be through phone calls, but they they will be being discipled by a single person for well over a year. Muslims coming out of Islam have so many questions because their minds have been filled with lies. And it's a very large mind shift that takes place. So our partners are doing discipleship one-on-one, uh, and they're multiplying the church as they do this. You got another story, uh, this one rather dramatic, having to do with a guy named Ahmed. I wonder if you could share that with our listeners. So I was privileged to meet a man that I'm going to call Ahmed uh, this spring in North Africa. He was probably the closest thing to the Apostle Paul that I will ever meet in my lifetime. Just a dramatic, powerful, glowing believer in Jesus. But he had actually studied for 17 years to become an imam when he decided that Jesus was God and that he must follow him. You can imagine how unhappy his family was. This brought tremendous shame upon them in the Muslim culture. And he had to escape from his family. His older brother was honor-bound to kill him. His older brother actually killed one of his sisters who tried to help him escape. She was beaten to death with a golf club. So he was living in fear from his family, from the National Security Service, who has arrested him over 150 times, even from his former wife. You know, she was required by law to divorce him when he became a believer in Jesus. He lost access to his children, his job, his inheritance, absolutely everything was lost to him because of following Jesus. But he got to a point in his faith in Christ when he felt God calling him to go back and to confront his family. And he told how it was an 800-kilometer trip back to his family home. He told how as he was driving there, he, he imagined, how will my family kill me? Will it be by a machine gun? Will they kill me with knives? And as he reached the family home, His mother came out with his daughters, but he said his eyes were frozen on that door waiting for his older brother. But when his brother came out to him to greet him, he knelt on the ground weeping, saying, why did you do this to yourself? Why did you do this to us? He said to Ahmed, Mm. don't you know I can kill you? 
And Ahmad responded to him, you can kill me now, but I will be free from fear. And his brother asked him, do you think I'm in the wrong faith? He said, please, you need to leave. This is the older brother saying, I just have one request of you. Go to the mosque and confess you are misguided and renounce Christ. And Ahmed told him, I cannot do that. Christ is not like Islam, where you can claim something false to escape. Well, his older brother said, thank you for not doing what I told you to do. And he actually began a relationship with his brother who came to Christ. Ahmed has, as I mentioned, been arrested over 150 times by the the National Security Police. Each time he's beaten, he's held at least overnight. But do you know what he does all night long? He shares Jesus with his jailers. Now, some of his jailers have come to Christ, and he studies the Bible with them and talks regularly with them. This is a living hero of faith in Jesus, and there is no doubt of the transformational power of the gospel when you meet believers like this. And I have to tell you, it really changed me. I came home just changed, and I have to tell you, this really changed me. Their boldness really inspired me to come home and share their stories with believers here and believers around the world, encouraging us to be bold, encouraging us to be bold in supporting them and praying for them in helping them financially to reach their own people. God is moving throughout the Muslim world, and what a privilege for us to get to hear these stories and to support these brothers and sisters in Christ that are paying such a high price. Well, you mentioned prayer, and that's a great way to land this conversation. How can we pray for guidelines as you guys reach out to Muslims? I think that you can continue to pray that God just keeps putting his people together, you know, that we meet the right partners to work around the world and that they they ask us to pray for them, not for protection, but for courage and for boldness. And that's what we would ask for as well. Our time has gone too quickly. Great stories, Bonnie. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much, John. Loved being with you all. And up next, Charlie Dyer returns with a fresh set of Bible questions. Maybe it's one that you emailed us. I'm looking forward to tackling those with Charlie next here on The Land and the Book. Few things are more satisfying than having a puzzling question that gets matched up with an answer. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land on the Book, and that satisfying feeling is exactly what you're going to have as you stay with us for this segment here on The Land of the Book, where Charlie Dyer opens his Bible, opens the email that has come to him from folks like you, and shares some great answers that finally, finally bring some perspective to many, many of these questions. Before that, though, this question for you, what does God really care about? Obviously, a full answer would be a long list, but there's one thing we often forget that he cares about, and that's the Jewish people. We see throughout Scripture that he cares deeply about their physical preservation and, of course, their eternal salvation. Yeah, that's why our friends at Life and Messiah have spent 135 years sharing God's heart for the Jewish people, both by proclaiming the gospel to them and by equipping others to do the same. This month, they're offering you a special ebook titled Sharing God's Heart. This 30-day devotional will help connect you with God's heart for his precious people. The articles, written by Life and Messiah staff, provide insight into Jewish life and culture and prepare you so that you too can reach out to Jewish friends with the gospel they so desperately need. 
To receive this free 30-day devotional, visit lifeandmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up today for your free gift. Okay, let's get to our questions. Always a full list. This one from Jim. He says, in my reading of the genealogies in 1 Chronicles 4, I'm trying to follow dependents, or maybe descendants in his case, of Judah. And then all of a sudden, the name Jabez shows up in a couple of verses and says positive things about him. Was he a son of Hur? Was he a son of Asher? Was his mother Hela? I'm wondering why this name all of a sudden appears in two verses, gives positive things, then never to be heard of again. While some have tried to connect Jabez either to the preceding verses or the following verses, you know, to connect him into genealogy, there really isn't a clear connection in the text. It's almost as if this individual, otherwise unknown within Judah's clan, had so distinguished himself that the chronicler paused to insert his accomplishments. So it's more important about who he is than which of those parts he was connected to. Uh, This one-act walk-on role in the biblical drama, it really is significant. And let me just add just a few quick thoughts. First, it's not unusual in the Bible to have the writer insert details about individuals who otherwise might play a relatively minor role. Another example in 1 Chronicles is in 1 Chronicles 12, 32, where uh, while listing the men who came to join David by tribe, the writer paused and added a comment about the men from the tribe of Issachar, who were the ones who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. It seems the compiler pauses at times to insert life lessons for a new generation while recounting Israel's history. Uh, The second thought I had in Jabez's case is his life served as a reminder that one's origin didn't necessarily determine one's destiny. His name comes from the word for pain, likely because his birth was the result of a hard labor on the part of his mother. But he rose above that inauspicious name given to him at birth by crying out to God and asking for God's blessing and his presence. And as a result, he became more honorable than his brothers. Jabez distinguished himself and received divine recognition as a result, and that's a good lesson for all of us. Mary takes us to the book of Revelation, where it speaks of 144,000 Jews who will evangelize throughout the tribulation. She asks, are they staying only in Israel to evangelize for those seven years? If they do travel, wouldn't the Antichrist just kill them to stop them from going around the world and preaching? Well, let me start by saying, I think the 144,000 do have a worldwide ministry. And I say that because the last half of Revelation 7 seems to show the impact they have on the world. After describing them in verses 1 to 8, John then says he sees a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And when he asks about them, he's told those are the ones who came out of the Great Tribulation. So it looks to me like they're the ones who came to faith and then are martyred through the testimony of the 144,000. But regarding the second part of your question, I think one possibility is that the 144,000 might not all be living in Israel when they're called. Though they're all Jewish, we know right now half the world's Jewish population lives outside Israel. So it's possible the 144,000 will include individuals from the Jewish remnant scattered around the world. And this would allow them to be able to have a worldwide impact without necessarily having to travel too great a distance. You're listening to The Land and the Book. It's from Moody Radio, and your question is welcome anytime. Email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Prophecy, that's welcome. The land of Israel kinds of questions, that's welcome. And of course, questions about scripture as well. Susan says, I'm having dinner with some friends from Israel who are about to finish up their studies and return home. What would be a good scripture passage to share? They don't appear to attend any synagogue. 
a good scripture to share with them that might help point them toward God in an appropriate way might be Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. It's the Aaronic benediction or the Aaronic blessing that God gave to Aaron and his sons to recite over the people of Israel. And though it was originally to be spoken over the people by the priests, I think you could say that it seems appropriate since they're leaving to head home and since it expresses the hope of your heart for them. And you can tell them it's from the fourth book of Moses, Bamidbar, which literally means in the wilderness. But then you can add that in your Bible, it's referred to as the book of Numbers because of the two numberings of the men of Israel found in it. And here's how it sounds in the New Living Translation. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. And hopefully that will have an impact and maybe point their hearts a little bit more toward God. Debbie writes, My family is composed of Christians, Jews, and nuns. Some of both our Christian and Jewish family are more cultural than religious, but for some, their faith is very important. Now, I'd like to get a Torah, which I think can mean the entire Old Testament as well as just the first five books, with commentary from the Jewish perspective. I'd like to understand the idioms, the nuances of the Hebrew. There is no shortage of Torahs with commentary, but I have no idea which is trustworthy. Any chance you could give me a recommendation? Thank you. Yeah, and the Jewish commentaries that I've used and really appreciate the most, are the, it's a 14-volume set, and it's called the Sonsino Books of the Bible. It's S-O-N-C-I-N-O. Uh, they're an older set. They were done about 75 years ago, and they're considered generally orthodox. Uh, what I like about them is that they accept the inspiration of the Bible. They hold to the historicity of events like the Exodus and the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. They also give more credence to the biblical text over the Talmud and Mishnah, now, they're looked at somewhat less favorably today because the ultra-Orthodox prefer an approach that focuses more on the Talmud and Mishnah, while the conservative and Reformed, well, they focus more on critical scholarship that denies the historicity of the biblical account. Uh, but this series will give you a good understanding of what was historically the Orthodox Jewish understanding of their Bible or our Old Testament. Thanks for joining us today on The Land and the Book, where we've got two questions They're pretty similar, so we're going to answer them both at the same time. Judy asks, does the Bible state that the Antichrist will be Jewish? If it does, could you please give the Scripture reference? And Diana asks, will the Jewish people consider the Antichrist to be their Messiah in the first half of the Tribulation? If so, many Bible scholars believe the Antichrist will be a Gentile, not a Jew. If they don't think he's their Messiah because he is not Jewish, who is their Messiah? Yeah, and while some do believe the Antichrist is Jewish— I don't know of any specific scripture passage that requires that to be the case. In fact, the few passages that come to mind, like Daniel 7 and Daniel 9 and Revelation 13, predict that the uh, Antichrist will be the leader of of a revived Roman Empire. Uh, And Daniel 9.26 says, The people of the prince who shall come, that's the Antichrist, uh, were the ones who would destroy Jerusalem and the temple following the death of the Messiah. So, of course, it was the Romans who destroyed the city, and the fourth empire in Daniel 7 then reappears in Revelation 13, as that little horn where the Antichrist comes from. So in regard to the Jewish people accepting the Antichrist as the Messiah, I don't see that required in Bible prophecy. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, many will come in my name claiming I'm the Christ and will deceive many. So certainly some will be Jewish, but it sounds like there are gonna be a a large number of individuals who claim to be Israel's deliverer. Uh, In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul provides a number of clues to identify the Antichrist. He says he'll be the lawless one, He'll act in accord with Satan. He'll exalt himself above everything called God, and he'll set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Uh, But the one thing Paul doesn't include is ethnicity. 
And as a result, uh, the Antichrist could be Jewish, but I don't believe that it's demanded by those passages. Last question from some Moody Radio Cleveland listeners, Brian and Barb. Uh, They say, my impression is that marriage is for one man and one woman. Why then did various Old Testament saints have multiple wives? I don't know how these men could justify such behavior. Yeah, God's original plan for humanity was one man and one woman, though the fall marred that ideal. Now, while God permitted individuals in the Old Testament to have multiple wives, the Bible also records the interpersonal problems that came as a result. You know, Jacob had his two wives and two concubines, and Solomon had his multiple wives, uh, and those are two of the clear examples. So uh, while God permitted it, it wasn't his ideal, and it certainly brought along problems. Thank you for these great questions today. And again, yours is welcome anytime. Just send us an email, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Don't go away. We're not done yet. Charlie's devotional, you won't forget it once you hear it next on The Land and the Book. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, and I'm John Gager. Coming up, Charlie Dyer's devotional, and uh, he's titled it, Like Father, Like Son. I don't know if you happen to be a parent. I am, and I'm at a point now with uh, our son. He's old enough that I can see in him some things that are definitely from me and that I wish he had not gotten from me. Yeah, I suspect we're all in that boat, or will be. Maybe you've got young kids at home. Rather sobering, though. Before Charlie's devotional, we want to share with you this Holy Land experience. Hi, my name is Kathy, and I was very surprised that in Israel, some people need to be called to worship, others pray at a wall where we can reach God anytime we need to. My name is Brent Slater, and I'm uh, just absolutely thrilled to be here in the Holy Land. I've studied the Bible and taught it for over 30 years. But for me, the powerful experience was to be up in Galilee seeing two things. The mountains where Jesus would go to be alone, so solitary, and the compact cities like Capernaum where he was totally surrounded by people, caring for people, and totally alone with his father. I'll never forget that. Hi, my name's Lisa Carlton, and I'm from Florida. And I'm amazed at the land and the wonderful sights that we see in Israel and how it makes the Bible come alive. And I'd love to come back again. Well, a number of years ago, former Moody President Michael Easley really kind of opened my eyes to the book of the Psalms and just kind of got me cranked about the Psalms. Charlie, where exactly are we headed today in God's Word and what should we be looking for? Well, we're heading to Psalm 131, and we're going to be looking at the expression, like father, like son. All right. I'll look forward to it. You know, we've all heard that expression, like father, like son, and the reality behind the expression is the fact that parents' character traits often show up in their children. The phrase itself has actually been around a long time. In fact, it dates back to at least the early 1600s to a work by Thomas Drax, who wrote, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. You've probably never heard of Thomas Drax, but that's due in part to his choice of titles for the books he wrote. For example, his use of this phrase came from a work with the exhausting title. You ready for this? Bibliotheca Scholastica Instructissima, or A Treasury of Ancient Adages and Sententious Proverbs Selected Out of the English, Greek, Latin, French, Italian, and Spanish, Ranked in Alphabetical Order, and suited to one and the same sense. 
Kind of just rolls off the tongue as a title, doesn't it? Uh, it's a shame Drax didn't have a publisher with better marketing skills. He and Shakespeare lived at the same time, but Shakespeare knew how to give his works short, powerful titles. Hamlet, Macbeth, A Midsummer Night's Dream, The Taming of the Shrew. Drax was a bit more verbose, and that's unfortunate because he was a great scholar. For example, in 1608, he wrote a book arguing for Israel's future restoration. Unfortunately, you've probably never heard of it because he titled it The World's Resurrection on the General Calling of the Jews, a familiar commentary upon the 11th chapter of St. Paul to the Romans, according to the sense of Scripture. Now you know why most scholarly books don't become bestsellers. But back to the expression, like father, like son. Family characteristics getting passed along to our offspring is often a reality of life. Sometimes it can be physical characteristics, like the color of the eyes or the contours of the face. Other times it can be specific mannerisms or facial expressions or even patterns of speech. But is the expression also true in the spiritual realm? David seems to suggest that it is in Psalm 131, a psalm of childlike trust. Though Psalm 131 lists David as the author, it was not included with most of his other psalms at the beginning of the book. Instead, this psalm was added to that collection known as the Psalms of Ascents. This group of 15 psalms from Psalm 120 through 134 were composed at different times in Israel's history, but they were collected probably after the Babylonian captivity to be sung by the pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the three annual feasts when all Israel was to gather before the Lord. Four of these 15 psalms were originally composed by David, but then given a special place here in this collection. Psalm 131 is deceptively simple, a short three-verse psalm that can easily be overlooked as we hurriedly try to read through our Bible. But the message is profound, which is why the psalm was placed in this collection. Let's look at the details of the psalm. David began by affirming his humility before God. My heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. Pride is an often repeated sin in the Bible. It led to Satan's rebellion against God. And when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, it was with the offer that they could become like God. Proverbs reminds Israel that pride comes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. Pride is an inflated view of one's self-importance and self-sufficiency that says, I don't need God's help. I'm good enough to do it myself. David lets his readers know he isn't self-sufficient. In fact, he finishes this first verse by focusing on his humble spirit, which is the opposite of pride. Nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Now, I think it's important to understand what David is not saying here. He's not suggesting that ignorance is bliss or that we shouldn't strive to learn and grow and develop. Rather, he has in view those aspects of life that he knows are out of his control. Rather than boasting about his own ability, David is willing to humbly acknowledge that the God of Israel is God, while he, David, is not. Instead of claiming to be the master of his fate and the captain of his soul, David begins by acknowledging that there's much in life that's simply beyond his understanding, and he humbly accepts God's sovereign control. But that doesn't mean David sees himself as a passive blob of humanity being swept helplessly through life. He does have a key role to play in his relationship to God, and it's much harder to accomplish than it might seem. He describes that role in verse 2, 
Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. The picture David paints is that of a child who is just beyond the infant and toddler stages. Infants and toddlers are cute, but they're also incredibly demanding. They often cry and scream to get what they want, when they want it. So David deliberately chooses the image of a slightly older child, one who has been weaned. In David's day, a child could be breastfed until he or she was about three years old. That child is older, more mature, and more capable of self-control. More than that, a three-year-old child is at a magical age, possessing a sense of wonder, childlike faith, and trust. David's job in life is to develop a childlike trust in God, a trust that will keep him close to God with a spirit that's content. David focused his efforts on developing the kind of trust a child instinctively has in his mother. And then in the final verse, David takes the truth and applies it to his audience. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. The word for hope has the idea of waiting with a sense of expectation, similar to the way a child might act when he asks his mother for a glass of water and then waits by her side as she finishes what she's doing so she can get it for him. One last point. This final verse bears a striking resemblance to the next to the last verse of the previous psalm. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with Him there is abundant redemption. Psalm 130 tells us why we should wait expectantly for God, because of His loyal love and redemption. Psalm 131 tells us how to wait for God, with the innocent trust of a young child. Jesus was the ultimate Son, who displayed unswerving trust in his Father in every circumstance, humbling himself to the point where he was willing to say, Not my will, but thine be done. David tried hard to be the same sort of humble, obedient son, and he ended his psalm by calling on everyone else to follow in his footsteps. Pride, I can do it myself. And impatience, I want it now. Bring us into conflict with God while humility and a sense of patient trust place us in the proper relationship to God. And Jesus is our ultimate example. Remember, like father, like son. Very sobering and, and very biblical at the same time, Charlie's devotional here on The Land and the Book. By the way, Charlie has put together 30 Days in the Land of the Psalms, a book that's available from Moody Publishers. You can read more about it when you visit our website, thelandandthebook.org. Click on the Books tab. You'll see books there from Charlie and one from uh, yours truly as well. Thelandandthebook.org. Look for 30 days in the land of the Psalms. Jackie has emailed to say, I sure do enjoy listening to the land of the book every single week, and I learn a lot from your question and answer session. Thanks, Jackie. You can email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Time's gone. I want to say thanks for your being with us today. Hope you'll join us again for next week's edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.